Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth, and this is the Right to Read Initiative. Today, I have the pleasure of Michelle Vanderveen joining me from Ontario, and she's going to let us know more about her journey to the science of reading. So thank you for joining me today, Michelle. Why don't you give us a little bit of information about who you are and what you do. Sounds good. So my name's Michelle. I teach in uh, Kitchener, Ontario with the Waterloo Catholic District School Board. And I've been teaching for um, permanent for nine years. And prior to that, I did many years of supply teaching because I graduated at a time when there was no jobs. Um, So, and I've taught everything from K to four. I'm currently teaching grade one, two. And this is my second year, um, again, teaching grade one, two. So uh, I went to um, uh, Laurier, Wilfrid Laurier University for my undergrad. And then Lakehead University is where I did my teaching, um, my teacher's college, my faculty of education. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of my education history (laughs) and where I'm at Awesome. Um, So in your teacher education program, did you have specific courses on teaching reading? We took a language program. So when I was at Laurier for undergrad, I volunteered with a program called LSFL, Laurier Students for Literacy. And we would um, meet, I did a couple of different volunteer things with them. One was meeting at the university on Saturdays and we would read and um, children would read to us. And it was, but it was just picture books and, you know, very little training. And, and then the other one was a tutoring program. So we would go um, into the community community and help students um, with their homework. And then when I was at Lakehead, I I had a language course. So it it was like a broad language. I actually remember very little from the program. It was, you know, many years ago. So, um, but I do know my, my, the teacher, the prof who taught language um, had some of us going and volunteering as well in the community. And I wish I could remember what the program was called but I, I can't I've been thinking about it but same thing we, we it was a reading where they would read we would read and but it was nothing specific about teaching reading and so you know once I graduated um, I did my reading at Q my reading part one and um, there was nothing about you know, what teaching reading it wasn't really until I got into uh, an LTO a long-term occasional position where uh, the principal gave us release time where we could learn how to do running records and so you know I had a half day where I observed an experienced teacher do running records with the PM benchmark books which is um, which are the books that my board currently uses and next year are using Francis and Pinnell so um so yeah so that's about all the real training I I have taken my reading too uh during the pandemic I took it um and it wasn't I it wasn't great and uh, I've been holding off on taking my specialist until they become more uh science of reading or structured reading focused and I do know that uh for those people in Ontario Trent University in Peterborough has talked about um incorporating science of reading into their uh, AQ course, Uh, but I'm kind of holding off until I know more, um, maybe see the course outline before I finally take it. Yeah, so are you experiencing uh, the same thing that we are in uh, British Columbia, where we have a, a lot of people who were former or current balanced literacy experts that have been doing a lot of professional development in the class and they're sprinkling in a little bit of concepts related to structure literacy and the science of reading but they don't seem to have that full in-depth understanding and you know behind you I see the vowel valley and you know they mm-hmm. wouldn't likely mention anything surrounding that 
No, that was, so I took that course on my own time uh, last summer. So um, I, I, what you're saying is correct. Like they, so at the start of this year, we were given uh, uh, K to three teachers were given the Hegarty um, manuals. And prior to that, the school year before, so how I kind of happened upon this, um, the summer prior to last year, so the 20, 2020, 2021 school year, um, I was moving from grade three, four, back into primary into one two and so i started you know looking around and i think something popped up on a facebook group about hegarty and phonemic awareness and i didn't really know what phonemic awareness was to be honest and our board has um literacy assessments that we are supposed to do twice a year and so and within that we, we do the rosner test and i really honestly had no idea what it was what it meant why it was used it was just there and i did it and you know and and now you know i've come to know that that children have to learn how to isolate and segment segment sorry and um and replace and blend and but i really didn't have much understanding of that so so again yeah so through the facebook's group facebook groups i saw um Hegarty come up so i kind of did some research and i ended up buying on um on my own i bought the uh primary and pre-k program for my class and i'm actually glad i ended up buying both because it's american and so they are their school year is different. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I believe they're ahead of us or the kids are older when they come to grade one. I'm not exactly sure, but I had bought the, I was one, two with mostly ones and I had bought the grade one program thinking it would be okay. But then I ended up, or I, uh, the grade one in the kindergarten program I purchased. And then I ended up with COVID switches and whatnot. I ended up being more too heavy. So um, around Thanksgiving that year, I ended up switching books to, to the grade one program for my class. And so anyway, so, and I noticed, I started seeing a lot of differences in um, what my students were doing. And then the board, um, the literacy consultant had been given money from the government, I believe. Um, and so they purchased, the school board purchased Hegarty for K-3. Um, so in theory, teachers are using it this year um, as, as that, but then we're still, you know, encouraged to, to use the PM benchmarks. Um, and I've made a, a personal choice not to this year. So I'm, I'm, you know, running with what I'm doing and, and kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of taking a reading stance and, um, and I've decided to really incorporate structured literacy in my everyday curriculum. Wonderful. That's that's great. So what are some of the disconnects that you're seeing between the uh, the PM benchmarks and what you're doing with a, a program like Hagerty that's focusing on phonological and phonemic awareness? So that's looking at the sounds in spoken language and your students' ability to manipulate them, going from the word level to the syllable level to individual speech sounds, which are phonemes. Right. So, you know, with the 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 leveled books, we know that um, with the right to read and what, you know, some of the experts are saying to stop the queuing, the three queuing. So looking at pictures and guessing what the words are and, you know, and so many students are really good at guessing or really uh, good at memorizing. So they were able to, you know, take these words and apply them elsewhere. But when they come across words that they don't know, they're not able to, you know, substitute a sound or recognize that, you know, they know that the, um, that the A can make the schwa sound or that the, 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 the A, the A, um, phoneme, mm, the, the letter A can make many different, the grapheme can make many different uh, sounds or phonemes. Uh, 
phonetic sounds. So it's, yeah, so I do see the difference now versus before, you know, when I was teaching grade, when I was teaching kindergarten, I was like firmly ingrained in balanced. Um, my board does use jelly phonics, but I never, I never loved it. Um, and I just, I think it was too gimmicky for me. So I bet a lot of people love it and that's great. Um, and, you know, use what works for you. But personally, I, oh, uh, can you hear me? Is it okay? I think it's just connection. Okay. I'm, I am at school. So, you know, I'm relying on the, the internet at school, unfortunately. Um, so, but I, um since using Hegarty and some other, you know, many of the other skills I've learned along the way, I do see students, you know, they're touching graphemes as they decode words. And so they're coming, you know, we did a science activity today and they had to, uh, they were just sorting uh, different things. And, you know, when they would come to me, I can't read this. I'm like, but you know, all those graphemes, so point to them. And they were able to decode the words based on, you know, the, the skills that we've learned this year. Whereas in the past, they weren't able to. Definitely. Well, and one thing that I'm hearing is that your, your district or your school is providing you with some great resources, but not necessarily the training on how to use them. And it may be that they're, you know, buying these resources on recommendation and they sound like, you know, good resources, but not giving the teachers the professional development to use them. And they themselves not understanding the purpose of the program and how it fits in with their other recommendations. Uh, yeah, I think since like COVID where the board, um, prior to COVID, there were PD opportunities, uh, especially for math. But, um, you know, once upon a time, there were language, there was a K-1 study um, when I was like nine years ago that I was a part of where we were looking at vocab, um, which is great. And so, you know, a piece of that equation. And so, but since COVID, there really hasn't been the opportunity to, um, because, you know, lack of supply teachers or funding or whatever. So we haven't been given that opportunity to be able to, to meet and connect. And to, you know, learn there was uh, at the beginning of the year when the Hegarty came out, there was um, an hour presentation about how to use it and its purpose and whatnot. And but if you really, you know, if it's just a book that's handed to you and you you have no idea, you know, it, it could be collecting dust in your cupboard, unfortunately, like, you know, we have many books. I have many books that collect dust in my cupboard because they're just another thing in there. You really have to, you know, I've been fortunate enough to take training and um, workshops and you know and and then apply it in the classroom to to see how uh, what structured literacy looks like so it really is beneficial to have professional development um, and hopefully you know with the right to read and the new language curriculum coming out in 2023 for Ontario we will see some professional development opportunities because it will be a change for many people and we will need to um, yeah, and, you know, we don't want to continue teaching how we were. We, we need to have a shift in our thinking. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things that I really liked about the recommendations in the Right to Read report is that it highlights the need for both professional development for in-service teachers that will have not got this information in their pre-service training and changing to the pre-service training of teachers. So, I mean, both you and I did not have phonemic awareness as a, a large part or any part of our teacher education program. So that's something that's been left to learn alone uh, uh, on our own through, you know, there are some amazing webinars on it available, but it's kind of a chance thing of whether you come across this information and it's not something that we have the right to leave up to chance. You know, the phonological and the phonemic awareness plays a huge role and is a huge predictor of future reading success. So we need to make sure that 
our teachers understand that there are 44 phonemes in the English language and what those are, how we use them, how we manipulate them, and the importance that our students understand them. They don't necessarily need to learn the word phoneme, but it helps and there's no reason why they can't. Oh, for sure. I use, I try to use, again, I'm stumbling here, um, but even in class, sometimes I stumble, but because they're words that we haven't been, you know, many of us haven't been to, exposed to before. So I do try to use phoneme, grapheme, blend, segment, and, you know, the students and my, my language or the one block in language that I have each day is called decoding. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and that's where uh, we learn a new phoneme or we play with phonemes or we're learning to encode, um, words with that phoneme and you know the, what the grapheme looks like so um my students are they've heard the the language all year long i even changed my report card comments this year to reflect um that as well and so and then parents you know i put it in in parentheses it's because i'll use the word phoneme and put it in parentheses um so parents know you know what's going on in class definitely mm -hmm. so is there anything that really helped you get on to this science of reading journey, um, going from those balanced literacy roots in your training? Well, so I started with Hegarty and that was just really the offshoot because I saw it pop up and I did a little bit of digging. And then in October of 2020, our classes changed and I knew I was getting um, one student in particular who had reading struggles and possibly dyslexia or you know some sort of learning disability we didn't really know there was no diagnosis and I like made it my mission this this child his goal their goal for the year was to learn how to read and I was like I am going to make that goal happen so I that's when I like really really jumped in two feet you know and I started grabbing and pulling and um, doing research and and when I happened upon the science of reading so so, you know, last year I, I played around and, you know, we watched videos and, um, and I had the Hegarty and um, I was doing a little bit, not really knowing much, just kind of, you know, reading and, and doing and seeing and, and, you know, I was still doing my, my my leveled readers so of my home reading program was still leveled books because that's what I had available to me. And I didn't, I had heard of a scope and sequence and I had seen a few pop up, but you know, I had the age old question and I see this question all the time um, on social media that like, what scope do I use? What's the good scope? And, and I really think like now I do follow a scope um, through recipe for reading. So I did take training this summer with IMSE. Mm -hmm. Institute for Multisensory Education. Um, and I did my Orton Gillingham comprehensive training. And so, and they use the recipe for reading. Um, so, and it's changing. I know in June, they're coming up with a new scope that's uh, not using recipe for reading. So I'll see what happens there, but I just decided to stick to this scope and sequence. And, um, and, and I think ultimately that's what you need to do. Like there, I've come across lots of free scope and sequences. I know UFLI has one and um, I can't remember the acronym, but it's the university in Florida and they have a plethora of free resources that people can use. Um, and they've actually are in the process of changing their program. And I think there's going to be a fee for a small part, but most of it will still be free. Um, so, and yeah, so there's lots of scope. So I decided to stick to a scope um, and follow it. Whereas last year I was kind of still over the, all over the map. I knew that, you know, my board has this assessment and I needed to have all of these sounds covered, but you know, what I'd love to see moving forward is a specific scope for either provincial or where where, you know, in kindergarten, these are the phonemes that are covered, like alphabetic principle. In grade one, it's this. In grade two and in grade three, et cetera, um, either provincially or at the board level so that it's consistent. So I have a new student that started today and I have no idea what he's learned. Um, 
And I asked, like, when we were doing our decoding, like, did you guys know, like, so their class wasn't learning this way. So it's, you know, I have uh, seven weeks left with this student and it's going to be brand new learning for him. So that could be, you know, a sh that will be a shift in his thinking for sure. But um so yeah, so I, this year I followed a scope and um, through that training, and I also did training with tools for reading, which is the sound wall behind me. Um, so you, and, and I'm talking more about this tomorrow, but, um, and so I also, um, yeah, so this year it was real, last year it was like dabbling. And then this year is being consistent and, you know, jumping in and doing it. Yeah, well, I think it's important uh, that we just take a moment to talk about what a scope and sequence is. So we, one, we're teaching children to read in a phonics program. The reason we use a scope and sequence is because there are 44 phonemes and that's more sounds than letters. Mm -hmm. And we don't just want to start at the letter A and go through alphabetically and end at Z, we want to do it in a way that's a logical order. Now, there isn't necessarily one spoke, uh, scope and sequence that's the best scope and sequence. We don't have that level of research saying that this scope and sequence is better than that scope and sequence. It's all about being systematic and explicit in your instruction. The scope and sequence is there to provide you with a guide for the order in which you're teaching those grapheme phoneme correspondences or the letter sound correspondences. Now, where I find, you know, one scope and sequence may be better than another is when we are looking at the resources available to go with it. And, you know, you're a teacher that is, I'm sure, spent thousands of dollars on your own resources and training and material. And not everybody has that time or that option. So we want to make sure that there are resources available for the scope and sequence that you're choosing. One that does have a lot of resources available that are freely available is starting with the SATPIN letters, S-A-T-P-I-N. Now, when you teach those six letters and their associated most common phoneme, there are more than 40 English words that are two and three letters that the students will have as part of their vocabulary already. So you're not having to teach them what the word means. And it means that they can have meaningful reading from the start. Now, as you add more letters, you increase the number of words that they are exposed or able to decode and encode. So decoding is reading and the reverse is encoding, which is spelling. And it's kind of like a breathe in, breathe out situation. And it's really important that we have these um, things lined up. So when we're teaching them the reading of these activities, we're teaching them the spelling at the same time. A lot of the programs that I'm seeing in school aren't don't have this alignment. So when we have this scope and sequence, uh, we're able to know that our students know these letters so that we can give them texts and books that have these letters. That means that our home reading programs can align with our classroom teaching and give our students the opportunity for more success. That doesn't mean that we can't have what some people consider uh, authentic texts, which are you know, the storybooks that we have at home in the class. And of course we want exposure to, because it's going to help our students with the comprehension and the understanding, but they're not necessarily going to have the tools to decode them. The other thing that you mentioned is having a district or a provincial wide scope and sequence. Now, the benefit of that is that, as you said, you'll know what your students have when you get them. Mm -hmm. And I, I know one argument against that is that it's taking away teacher autonomy. 
now the, the problem with that is that the goal of education is to teach students how to read. And there are some things that students must have in order to progress. And I think it will save all teachers a lot of time if they're teaching the same scope and sequence. So, for example, like the, the new student that you have, you can assume that there is a level of learning that is done and leave the autonomy to different aspects of the program. Definitely. I, I, yeah, that's my, and, you know, and teachers still have autonomy within that scope. So if you know, you know, kindergarten that you're doing the alphabetic code, then, you know, you have some flexibility. So with my scope, I knew that, well, I, I got COVID. And so, and when I was doing my plans for COVID, I went out of order with my scope because I was like, well, I'm going to pick a, a phoneme grapheme that, um, that will be easy for the teacher coming in to, uh, to apply. I have the resources, I know what's there. And so, you know, I was able to mix things up again. Does it matter in the long run? No, because it still got covered. And then I just, you know, went back and we're teaching, I'm working on marker E right now with the students, which was what was supposed to be taught. So, you know, you, you can be flexible a bit in there. And there are, if you do follow the SAT PIN uh, scope, then there are, you know, many resources I've come across, like free decodables and, you know, and, and passages and readings that you're able to do with one of the things that I'm doing right now is taking, I've kind of signed up for every workshop through IDA Ontario that I've been able to. So the um, International Dyslexic Association of Ontario, and they have offered free workshops as well as paid the one that I'm currently in which is the year-long course the top 10 tools um, there was a cost but there was also subsidy so I was able to receive subsidy for the course um, which was half the cost of it and so, and so every month, I'm meeting tonight, um, every month we meet with an instruct, instructor who works with IDA and we have, um, it's with the top 10 tools, Deb Glacier, I believe is her name. And um, we learn about the different parts of Scarborough's reading rope, which I know you've talked about several times on the podcast because I am an avid listener. Um, so, you know, so tonight we are talking about writing. Um, we're, we're coming towards the end of the course, but, and it's been invaluable. Like if you can take any course, if you're going to put money in anything, I highly recommend the top 10 tools. The registration's open now and I don't work for them. So this is not uh, me making money or anything. It's just, it's, it's really been like working with the instructor and hearing her, you know, it's someone who's has experience in teaching um, structured literacy and in a systematic explicit way. And, you know, and, and many of the people in the course, they had never heard of science of reading or it was brand new for them and it's just and then you get to connect with teachers in Ontario so I'm in southwestern Ontario so the teachers are in southwestern Ontario as well you can hear what other school boards are doing or not doing or you know where where things are headed and it really has been a great learning experience. I was able to get a friend um, to sign up as well, and, and she's in Toronto. And so we connect, you know, often on the way home from school, we call each other and we talk about, um, you know, you know, structured literacy, like, you know, we're total school nerds and we, we love to bounce ideas off each other. And, you know, have you tried this or, you know, what's happening? And so I, I think it's, it's been great. Like, like having that person, I have also um, my teaching partner here, who's a straight grade one, who I've, you know, roped into science of reading this year as well. And, you know, she is, she has like over 20 years experience teaching in primary. And last year when I started Hegarty and I was like, oh, I have this extra book. So she grabbed it and started. And so, and, you know, and it was COVID and we were off for much of the year and from home. And, but she said she noticed a difference in the growth of her students. So hearing, you know, it's not just me, um, 
doing this. It's there's other people out there who are who have seen the progress and the results of teaching structured literacy. So it's it was it was for me it was so validating. Like there was such validation in seeing the right to read report come out, and you know all year it was supposed to come out in the fall and then it kept getting pushed. And so, you know, we were waiting kind of with bated breath to see what it would say. And it was, it was, yeah, we, we really, you know, there's so many children. I know Catherine, uh, you have dyslexia and you have a child with dyslexia and I have a child with dyslexia who's currently in grade six and he was diagnosed or he was assessed again with the financial means. So I was able to get him a psychological assessment. Um, in grade two and it came back with um, learning disability because we don't want to name it dyslexia hopefully moving forward um, next year I want to get him reassessed because he's going to high school soon and I'm going to have them you know I'm going to find someone who uses the term dyslexia and put it in his report there's such um, power in knowing that's what you have and not just a generic LD. Um, and we, you know, I, I should have known like my, my husband's dad has dyslexia and my husband's brother has dyslexia and his aunt, like it's very prominent on that side of the family. And who knows, it's probably on my family too. And I just don't know. And, you know, and sure enough, my child was struggling in kindergarten, was not being, was not able to memorize those sight words, you know, came into kindergarten, not knowing how to print his name, like his older sibling did and was not reading. He was at a, you know, level one book in grade one. We but I'm sure you didn't read to him at home, right? Oh, not but at you, all. You no. read to your older child and did all the, the activities that you're supposed to do with the older child, but you're like, hey, you know what? This one doesn't get it. Yeah, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to read to you. No, of course. Like we read pigeon and elephant books like every night at my house because those are the books he loved. But um, yeah, so when the diagnosis came in, it's still, I still feel like I wish I was one of these people who I've heard on podcasts saying that was the moment I knew I had to do something, but I wasn't. I, um, a little bit of a, a failure to my child syndrome that a little bit of guilt because a lot of guilt, because I knew being a teacher in the system that our school board offers empower, um, which, you know, for people who are not, who don't have it or who aren't in Ontario, it's, it's a reading program um, that sick kids developed. It's very much like Orton Gillingham. Um, and so he, I pushed for him to one, get an IEP in grade two, uh, two, to receive Empower, which he was very fortunate to receive. Our school board offers Empower. So, you know, one or two reading groups for the whole school. So five or 10, you know, to, it, it's a reading group. They meet every day and um, for a block of time and they follow a, a program. And um, he was very fortunate, but it's a tier three program. So very few students in a whole school get to benefit from Empower. He was fortunate. He progressed and did really well. But I know a friend of his didn't. And I, and I, I just, I couldn't understand it. Like, why were they not making gains? And it didn't make sense to me. And, and you know, I've come to realize and learn that um, empower isn't like the be all and end all. And, and you can't just get it one year and be done with it. it. It's an ongoing learning. And these are building blocks that build on each other. And so actually last year, that was one thing I actually emailed sick kids. And I asked if I could personally pay for the training. And they said, no, you have to be for, um, it has to be run through the board and you have to be a special education teacher, which I'm not specifically, although I would gather that we would all, all classroom teachers would, could say they're special education teachers. Um, and that's when I started looking at different programs that I could take because I knew there was something out there that I was missing and, and I needed to do it. I needed for myself um, to figure out what it was and how I could get better because 
I felt like I failed my, I felt like I failed my kid. And if I'm failing my own kid, what, you know, what have I done throughout the years for the students I've taught? But I mean, there's that book, No Better, Do Better. So, you know, I didn't know and, and that's okay. And, you know, so many people don't know, but moving forward now I do. And so I'm doing my best to, you know, am I perfect? No. Am I still learning? A hundred percent. There's tons of things I need to learn. And, you know, every week when I, or not every week, sorry, once a month when I meet for the IDA course, I'm like, oh yeah, vocab. Like I can incorporate it with science and social studies or, oh yeah. Like the comprehension piece was always puzzling for me because I knew like the simple view of reading that decoding times um, language comprehension is it language comprehension equals comprehension so that comprehension piece has been puzzling for me for the longest time until and I um I talked with you or not I talked sorry I listened to one of your podcasts and and you mentioned that um that students are holding so much um trying to decode and learn the 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 phonemes um, that it's in their working memory and until it comes easy for them until they recognize you know marker e we're learning um, until they know those generalizations they're holding it once they've mapped it once that's orthographically mapped and um it's pushed into like a different part of their brain and this is the part like i'm not a scientist i'm an art student and you probably know more about the brain knowledge than i do but i do know that it goes from working memory to another area of the brain and once it's moved then they've opened up space for those um, that higher order thinking, that that full comprehension. So when they're they're reading a picture book or a chapter book or whatever, they're able to decode the words easy. They have them sight their sight words now because they've mapped them. They don't have to decode them. Um, maybe they they'll come across the occasional word, of course. Like I'm a Harry Potter fanatic, and you know, reading the, reading the name Hermione, I couldn't get it until the movie came out. I had no idea. I had never heard of it. You know, like at the time when I was reading Google wasn't really around in the early, in the early two thousands. And, um, and so, but, you know, you kind of stumble through using the strategies you have and it opens up that comprehension piece. So, you know, I've, as I go throughout the year, I've, I'm adding more and changing more and keeping, and I've already started thinking about next year um, because again, nerd. <laughs> um, so this summer I'm, I'm interested in taking a, um, a structured word inquiry course. So I have two, um, one's in, a lady in Toronto, a woman in Toronto, uh, fundamental learning, I think is her website. Lisa is her name. I'm not, I don't know how to say her last name, um, but she is also an OG trainer. Um, and there's a woman in the States as well, um, who runs uh, one specifically for early readers, which is why I think I'm going to take both. And I have books sitting that I'm going to, you know, go through this summer um, building where uh, I wrote it down building words I can't remember off the top of my head and I have many many notes so I probably won't be able to find it but um, I can for tomorrow (laughs) those who are listening live we will have this available uh links in the uh replay and in the description of the podcast episode so you can uh access these resources that michelle's been talking about uh through this episode and i as you mentioned you are coming on tomorrow i'm very excited to see how you use all these different tools in your toolbox I'm looking, uh, I can't see it, <laughs> but um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I have, I, I have those books and I have the books that I've already read, like uh, mm-hmm. Kilpatrick was my read over March break last summer, uh, not last summer, sorry. Yeah. Over March break. See, I'm so like, ah. <laughs> um, I was so nervous for today and, and I get like verbal, <laughs> the, the verbal stuff just comes out because I think I probably have ADHD and, and now I'm, now I'm excited and really like, 
like getting into it, but it takes me a while to warm up. But um, you can tell it's your passion and your students are so lucky to have you. And again, like you shouldn't feel guilty for stuff that you haven't been instructed in in your training programs. And that's hard for everyone to get you know, over the fact that, you know, there are students that I missed in the past. And that's why the Ontario Human Rights Commission's right to read public inquiry report and recommendations are so important to get out there and not just for Ontario. We need it to get it across Canada, across North America, across the English speaking countries. And you know what, every other country after that, because a lot of these things are best practices for teaching reading, regardless of the language. The human brain learns how to become a proficient reader in one way. And there are things that teachers of reading can do to make sure that their students have the best opportunity to learn how to do this the first time. And that's what the recommendations are all about in this report, giving teachers the curriculum that they need to guide them so that they can meet the curricular goals. They are to help make sure that the resources that teachers are using follow those best practices and are aligned with them. So, that, you know, any progress monitoring measures, any screening measures, the textbooks, the readers that you have in your classrooms, those are consistent for what we need our students to have to be a good reader. Um, and then also, what does a good intervention look like? What can we do for our students that have a specific learning disability in reading or writing with dyslexia or another learning disability or neurodiversity need to accommodate their learning? Just because we use these best practices in reading instruction and provide the early intervention doesn't mean that our students aren't going to require ongoing support and accommodations. As you mentioned, your son has dyslexia and he's going to be going into high school and that need for the diagnosis so that he can get the support he needs to succeed. As a dyslexic myself, I know the vital importance of having the appropriate accommodations in place and realizing that assistive technology isn't always the answer and the only thing that's going to help our students. I was just thinking that. I was thinking when you were talking about, um, yeah. Um, so, and for so long, I, I, when, you know, you see, you see a student and you're like, oh, I think maybe, I'm not sure. And you talk with parents and, and I would always, when, you know, and if they were going for assessment, I would, I would, would like make sure it says something about a computer in there so that, you know, we can, and, 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 and I realize now the computer is not the be all and end all. They still, a child still needs to learn how to read and a child needs to um, be able to encode and you know the computer is is a great tool once you have things in place and my son uses it and uses it efficiently I know his grade four teacher said he was the expert and he used to help other um, kids with a google read and write and so you know and that is a tool that works for him um, but it's not really until this year that he's picked up a book and like actually wanted to read for fun and for pleasure and I just was like what book do you want I'm gonna go like I was like ready to buy any book he wanted because I was like you're reading and so you know and just just throwing a computer at him is not going to teach him how to read and one thing for the the right to read uh, report I've printed the executive summary and I've been going through it um, um, is that it's it uh, specifically says that uh, school boards need to have a tier one tier two or in tier three uh, program in place um, at each school or within the board I can't remember specifically but 
you know, so I think about what's happening right now. Um, while people are kind of doing their own thing for language, like within the classroom, I really, you know, we really don't know what's happening from one room to another. Uh, tier three is in power in my board. I don't know what tier two is. Guided reading, is that what they would consider? No, I know now, no, but that could be what, you know, is currently. So um, boards are going to need to figure out what these, what these things look like. And it's not one program like you can't go out and buy a science of reading program it's not a program it's 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 the science like science of reading is the science it's the brain science towards how people learn how to read and it's based on like 50 or five decades 50 plus years worth of research it's not something that was established two years ago it's not a fad you know the reading wars this and that well um balanced literacy still had some phonics Science of reading is not just phonics, you know, and, and that's what people have to understand as well. So I, I worry about the reading wars debate because it's, it's not about that. It's about you're doing this really well, but we also need to add this. So, and this is what a more comprehensive um, program in your classroom looks like. It's not something you can purchase at a store. It's, you know, it's pulling from multiple spaces and we need to be, we need to have these uh, resources available for teachers um, so that the equity piece is there so that it's provided for everyone and every student and, um, and not just people that can afford it. I'm very blessed. I know I am. Um, and, and I use it and I take courses and workshops, but I also teach, like I, I profess my love of it and I try to, you know, inspire other people and I share as many resources that I am allowed to share and, um, just, um, for people who are listening, uh, there is um, a shared Google Drive, an Ontario Science of Reading Google Drive that you can um, that you can join through the Ontario Science of Reading Facebook group. I help manage it, and so people share resources on there, and so like spread the love um, for ones that you're allowed to share. You know, copyright issue, copyright. And we want to be mindful of all of that, um, but you know there are there are resources out there for people, and I hope you know moving forward that school boards start um, learning more, digging more, that teacher programs start doing this. I had a teacher candidate this year from an Ontario university and, and I was like, oh, have you heard of science of reading? No, it's like, okay, that was in November, December. And then in, after the report came out the end of February, so March sometime I sent her a message. I'm like, oh, have you learned about science of reading yet? No, I'm like, oh, they still haven't. They still haven't. And I guess you can't do it overnight, but just like, I don't know, watch a video, <laughs> suggest a book, <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's lots out there. And so maybe in September, universities will start um, incorporating this. I actually put out um, um, someone that you've interviewed with, um, Kim Lockhart. Is that how you say her last? I think it's Lockhart. Yeah. Um, she is an FSL science of reading guru on, and you can find her on Twitter. And and she um, is involved in Kingston um, um, with, well, I guess it would be with Queens University that there was a program. So Queens teacher candidates were able to take um, a course learning about structured literacy and kind of as a, a free course and now you're going to help you know and then with the promise that you're going to help tutor students so you know with uh, Laurier who has a teacher program which is the local university for me I was like I'll help like I will I would love to be a part of of helping and giving back to the community you know I I tutor students um, privately but I also tutor for free in the summer because I want to give back and you know there's uh, 
a, you know, a student that I'm going to work with this summer. And I taught him, I've taught him for three years. I taught him in great in kindergarten. And then I looped, I looped again because I moved to three, four. So I've taught some students for three years and I've already connected with mom. I'm like, I want to tutor him. Let me help. And, and I feel like this is my no better, do better. So I didn't know then, but I know now, and I really want to help you. Um, so, you know, teachers using what they've learned and what they know and, and, and helping and giving and, you know, a, my, a friend, my friend in Toronto who volunteers her time twice a week after school for free um, to help students because she sees that there's dyslexia or LD something with no diagnosis, but, and she, and she's giving back. And so, you know, she's using her skills and, and applying it. And I think, you know, there's more than just the two of us or three of us out there. There's, there's people that want to, to do this and to help improve students and teach them how to read. I want to get kids reading. I want, you know, this year. So, so how it works with the grade ones um, typically is that you, um, you kind of peg a couple students who are not, um, who haven't gained as much as other students. And those are the ones who would be involved in Empower next year. And I'm looking and I'm like, I have 15 grade ones. I'm like, mm, no, I think we're good. Like everyone's good. We've learned it. We're good. Like they've, they've processed all of the skills I've taught. Is everyone perfect? No. Is everyone getting an A on the report card? No, but they're gaining, they're using these skills. And even if it's like when they come to me with their writing, for example, and I see they, their vowel, you know, their CVC word is they've used the wrong vowel, short vowel. I'm like, you know, eh, Eh. and they're like oh yeah that's I and so they'll go back and fix it so you know they have these tools I've given them their toolbox is full and you know it's full and they're equipped to move into a class and even if that class is not doing a structured literacy yet they have this these skills that I've taught them how to decode how to encode how to segment graphemes and um, how to break up syllables uh, which I haven't talked about at all. Sorry, again, I'm all over the place because I get so excited. Um, you know, I've taught them how to break apart syllables, how to identify different syllable types. When you come across a word you don't know and, and to break it apart. And I think that's what the general um, research was showing was that, you know, kids could memorize a lot of words in kindergarten and grade one. And then when they get to grade three and grade four, and they're handed this science textbook, and they have to read, you know, words from science or social studies, they have no idea how to decode it. They haven't memorized it. They've never seen it before. They can't do anything. Can't tell with them. Right? Right. So photosynthesis, not something I'm going to guess in a picture. We talked about that word today in science. And so exactly. And so I haven't taught the pH phoneme uh, uh, <laughs> graphing yet. That's next week. Um, but <laughs> but, well, but I, I did. I did mention it. And so mm -hmm. and something my instructor and um, um, from IDA, uh, she's very much into the um, the morphology of words. And that's why I want to take a structured word and create class to learn more about the morphology, the, the history of words, why, why pH is the way it is. Well, it has Greek background. It comes from Greek, um, the Greek language. And so English is infused with many other um, languages. And so knowing that, well, words that have pH, photo, um, graph, these are all words that are derived from Greek and so I often and look the Greek alphabet didn't have an H ah oh. so pH oh. and that's why it's there okay see I didn't know that part but I often look at an etymology online Mm -hmm. And it was, I, um, I, and I will see the history of words, mm -hmm. um, which has been fascinating for me and the students. Um, they're like, I, you know, I go home and I tell my mom, this word's from 1200. And so, you know, they're teaching their parents things as well. They, um, today, a, a teacher in the school was teaching the IGH mm -hmm. um, graphing. And so um, she's, and so the kids didn't know like, why is it that way? And I was like, Oh, I'll help. Like, I love this stuff. So I looked up etymology online and, um, IGH is, is, um, is 
I think it's from 1200, which is probably why I just said 1200. <laughs> um, it's very old. So it comes from very old English, you know, and there's like the scribal O and there's so many, there's reasons like English is, it's, it's, it's hard, but there's reasons. There are generalizations as to why things are the way they are. And once like as a teacher learning these things and, and teaching them and seeing their eyes and, and then seeing them apply it and they'll come up to me and they're like, I use the suffix ed. It sounds like id, you know, like they're, they're, they're telling me thirsty. They're so thirsty for the knowledge. And it's when they just pick up these little factoids and it's not just saying, oh, because it is. Yeah. Because it's tricky. It's not tricky. There's a reason behind it. Yeah. Well, and understanding why when you have a V at the, it's never in an English word. It doesn't end a word. So there's always an E after it. And that's why when you have words like have and give, it doesn't have the long vowel exactly so words in english typically don't end with i u j or v there's a marker e look i'm pointing wrong here it is (laughs) marker e is added to the end as a placeholder because of that and so and knowing that now i don't have kids writing have h-a-v Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they have this, we've learned the three different generalizations of marker E and except for the word I and you, sorry, <laughs> um, because they, I is by itself and you ends with a U, but words in English typically don't. And that's another thing. I'm a very, actually, I'm a very like all or nothing in my speech. And so I have to correct myself because um, rules, I try to say generalizations as well, not rules, they don't always apply. And so when you say like, well, this, or the two vowels go walking, and the first one does the talking, well, that's only in like 40%, I think, of the words. So don't say I did it last, I did it last year. Um, but no better do better. So now I know that um, that doesn't apply all the time. So um, I don't say it. So taking some of these always or never or out of your vocab because um it it doesn't work because then when you come across the word and it's a rule breaker especially with all the new words and the borrowed words from other languages and um the short forms that we're getting from texting yeah and uh yeah it's you can't say never. You can't say it always, um, except for you're never going to find a rule that always applies. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> you will never find a rule that always applies. Um, one thing that I know I was doing wrong last year for sure, and I think the mask really uh, accentuated it, was um, adding schwa. Um, Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I'm reading the comments and I'm like, ah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, adding the schwa to the end of words. So I'm, you know, buh. Well, buh is not, you know, I, I was very notorious for adding schwa. And I think with the mask, because I had to enunciate so much more, it just made it worse. And so when I did my sound wall uh, course uh, in June last year, I was like, oh, yeah. So, you know, that's been a conscious effort this year to eliminate the schwa from sounds and clip them. And um, that's the one thing I found with Jolly Phonics is that I see the schwa in a lot of sounds and Hey, maybe that's why I didn't like it all along. No. <laughs> um, but so kids come to me, you know, saying, Puh. and so that was, you know, we did a lot of work at the beginning, you know, letter is P sound is P or the, the R, uh, the grapheme R, um, is not er, it is er, like rural or rabbit. Mm -hmm. So getting those sounds correct, which then, you know, they're not writing, um, are you whatever, whatever the word is. So they're eliminating that. So their encoding has improved. 
Well, I want to be conscious of time. I do want to answer the one question that we have, but I'm so excited because you're coming back tomorrow to show us how you actually do it in your classroom. Maybe I won't Uh, be as nervous. (laughs) You're doing great. So the question is, what do you say when some teachers criticize teaching phonics and they claim that phonics is not systematic? Phonics is not systematic. So... I, um, I, I really I actually asked a, this question in my course because I was like, what do you, you know, I, I, what do people, what do you say? And um, I'm not sure exactly for what you said earlier, Catherine, that when you are following, um, I think people have to understand the whole picture. So, you know, the, the, the Scarborough's Reading Rope is a great resource um, and kind of digging into how it works uh, because you teach systematically um, so that they can start decoding more and more words. So as you add um, phonemes on, they're then expanding their repertoire for books they can read and um, words they can spell. You know, they're not stuck. Like when I started this year and I did my initial assessment and I had half my class not like giving me 15 sounds, that's it they had 15 phonemes. And I was like, I'm starting from the kindergarten, you know, I'm starting from kindergarten, and I'm increasing, they couldn't write a word at all on their own. It was always like, how do you spell this? How do you spell this? How do you spell this? But by giving them that tool, um, you're able, you're increasing their confidence and um, their knowledge. And so by, by following a phonetic by following a scope and sequence you're up you're building those building blocks so that they are able to build if you're just randomly teaching phonemes or you're teaching all the vowel teams at once they're not going to grasp what they are like they'll 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 see them that day and but um can they read that can they read words now with those sounds or those graphemes or can they write them and that's what I was finding as a three four teacher sure they could read they couldn't write they couldn't spell to save their life and so by really you know slowing down and being systematic I've improved the spelling of my students so I do like I mean you can say whatever you want to people and whether they listen or whether they agree you know you just do your best to justify the the science behind it and your belief and your proof like the proof is in the pudding I've seen the evidence in my class I'm not sending a kid to grade two next year not being able to decode CVC um, blends digraphs they have mastered all of those marker e we're moving on to some vowel teams and um, and I'll get to one R controlled sound I think by the end of the year so I am further behind than I would have liked to have been this year, but COVID and, you know, these are my COVID babies who mm-hmm. haven't had a full year of school and who, um, who this is the first year in a systematic approach. So um, hopefully every year it gets better and better, but I think, you know, you, you justify yourself by saying, I can see the increase in the number of words they can read and write and the number of sounds they have and And the science is behind, the science backs it up. 50 years of science and research isn't wrong. We just didn't know, or we didn't want to believe, or maybe they weren't able to communicate it. I'm not sure why all of a sudden it's there, or just that there's so many kids that we're sending who, you know, can't read every year, and we're just passing them along because we have to, and and we're playing catch up all the time. But if we target them, the kids in kindergarten, grade one and grade two, and give them these foundational skills, they have them moving forward. Yeah, well, I'm just looking up at the follow up to that question, and I think I'm going to jump in. So I think one of the things that you're touching on is a lot of teachers don't understand the logic behind the English language, and it's stuff that they've been able to figure out and internalize on their own. And I find that when T 
teachers learn and understand, or anyone who learns and understands the logic behind English. It's actually the name of a great book. Fantastic. Uh, it's on my list for tomorrow. <laughs> the logic yeah. of English is a fantastic book. Uh, and understanding why we spell words the way they do. It, they begin to understand the importance of it. Now, your follow-up questioning, you're talking about things when the confusion comes to deciding the pronunciation of a word that has a homonym. So there are two pronunciations to a spelling like tear or tear. Understanding or choosing which word to pronounce in that situation. Now, I want to highlight that this is not something we're doing with a lot of beginning readers. This is beyond the point of basic phonics instruction. We want the basic phonics instruction to give them the solid building blocks that they need to decode any word. When there are words that have the same spelling but different pronunciation, that's when we're going to go to the context of what the situation means. So is, does it make sense for me to say tear or tear based on what they're reading in the context of the situation? When it comes to spelling patterns, there definitely is logic behind that. Like, for example, two, two, and two. Uh, the number two has the TW because that is a grapheme. Uh, sorry, not uh, sorry, a phone's theme. And the TW signals that it's relating to the number two. And, and these are things that are definitely factoids that take time to learn. But as you learn them, it makes sense. And if you're able to give that knowledge to a student who's in kindergarten, grade one and grade two, they'll have that for the rest of their life. And it'll just make sense. It's like, well, yeah, obviously that makes sense. And we're seeing that with children that get this instruction and it allows you to differentiate things a little bit. So maybe in a kindergarten class, you know, you have kids that are at the very beginning or just trying to figure it out. But when you're talking about why the number two is spelled T-W-O, you have those higher kids in the class that are already reading. But you mentioned that, you know, any word that relates to two, like twin or twi um, twilight, uh, I can't think of any more just off the top of my head right now, <laughs> um, but it relates to the number two, 20, right? 200. It has that TW and we're not saying T, W, U. The TW is having that meaning as part of it. Um, something that I talk with my students about too is flexing their vowel sounds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it a or a, you mm -hmm. know, and sometimes um, the intonation of how you say it, like, is it the or the? <laughs> um, so, and that's a dialect thing as well, but um, we've talked about flexing. So if it doesn't sound right here, does it sound right if you say it this way? Mm -hmm. And so, especially as we start talking more about long vowels. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I believe the EA has the most, isn't it the most combination of sounds? I have to pull one of my books out to take a look, but mm -hmm. um, that EA, um, the grapheme EA, the grapheme the EA has many, has many phonetic sounds yeah. it has it is paired with many phonemes yes so yeah that one in particular so yeah. you know yeah but if when we when we're teaching those older students and we're talking about flexing this out yeah so um getting them to be flexible so yeah. and then yeah well, I can't wait till our conversation tomorrow. Uh, the same bat time, same bat channel. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, and we will be going into this stuff in more detail. And I'm hoping you're going to give us not just what you're doing this year in your grade two classroom, but advice about how you'd cover the same concepts, maybe earlier or later mm -hmm. with some of the resources you're going to be sharing. Thank you, everyone. And have a great rest of your day.